I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. We'll be picking up where we left off, and I'll pass out the outline here. And uh, last week we concluded the prologue of John's Gospel, uh, sort of his introduction, how he summarizes the uh, entire <laughs> Gospel of John, his whole message. In verses 1 through 18. So, just uh, by way of introduction to get us going, um, how would you sort of summarize what we um, said in those those two lessons about the prologue? Um, what was the main point? How would you crystallize um, what we what we said? Any points you remember stood out to you? Points to Christ, good. Yep. What else? So we said that the prologue sort of is John's crystallization, his summary of the person and work of, of Jesus Christ. Um, I think specifically last week, we sort of zoomed into those verses 14 to through 18, and uh, said it specifically had this background of the Exodus. Do you remember what our point was there? Good, yeah, he, he's, he's greater than Mount Sinai, he's greater than the tabernacle, he's greater than Moses and all these things, because you think of the Old Testament, um, or if a Jew would think of it, the greatest display of God's glory was, was none other than at Sinai, where he appeared and he displayed the core of his character, which is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he revealed it in the tabernacle. And John is saying that um, all those things, that, that was true, those were full expressions of God's glory and grace, but now it's put on even greater and fuller and final and ultimate display in the arrival of Jesus Christ. God made flesh. Um, and dwells among us, tabernacled among us. Um, and so really, I mean, uh, verses 1 to 18, such a crystallization that if you were to unpack the fullness of verses 1 to 18, you would need the entire Gospel of John. I mean, he's packed it all in there. And so now we're going to start unpacking it um, a little bit. And this morning we come to verse 19, which is John the Baptist. Um, the Gospel writer John begins where most of the other Gospel writers begin which is the ministry of John the Baptist. But what I want us to think about this morning is um, verses 1 through 18, the prologue, what we just said, what would it look like if we really believed those verses? What would it look like if those truths about the glory of Christ expressed in verses 1 through 18 really took root in our heart? And I think that is the exact answer that we get this morning. Um, like we said, we're going to talk about John the Baptist. That's where John begins his narrative. But I think he does so. He zooms into this specific aspect of John the Baptist in order to show us this is what it looks like if you really grasp what we talked about in verses 1 to 18. John the Baptist gives us the perfect example, the perfect picture of that. Beholding the glory of Christ results in genuine humility and a preoccupation with Christ above all else. 
So let's read it. Verses 19, we're going to go through 28 this morning, and then we'll unpack it. This is the testimony of John. That's John the Baptist. When the Jews and priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. You're the prophet. And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. <laughs> But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So in this section, we're going to see John's two Christ-exalting responses to the inquiry of the <laughs> Jewish leadership. Two Christ-exalting Responses. Look at verse 19 again. It says, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? So this verse gives us the setting for this whole section. At this point, um, word about John the Baptist had begun to already spread like wildfire through um, all the region of Israel, Judea, Samaria. Uh, people were hearing about him. There's been over 400 years of silence since a prophetic word has been spoken since the close of the Old Testament canon. Um, Israel's been waiting for the arrival of the Messiah and other end-time figures um, who are going to bring to pass all these remaining promises that the Old Testament had promised. Um, and all of a sudden, this guide in John the Baptist comes onto the scene, and he presents himself as a prophet with a very sharp message of repentance directed to Israel that Israel has heard since 400 years prior. Um, and people are coming to him from all directions. And, uh, and word about this has reached the ears of the authorities in <coughs> Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was sort of the religious center of Israel, just like you can think of D.C. as the political center of America. It is where the Sanhedrin, the leadership that oversaw all of religious life in Israel resided. And so they catch word of this guy, John the Baptist, and never seen anything like this before. What who is he? What is he what is he up to? So after hearing about him and all these crowds that he's attracting, they see it necessary to send a delegation, an official delegation from the leadership to him to find out just who he claims to be and what authority he claims to have. And, uh, and then the delegation would return to Jerusalem and, and report. This is who he says he is and what authority he has. Because clearly um, he hasn't been sent out by them. And, uh, they want to figure out uh, who you think you are. So they come to him with this very simple question. Who are you? To which John gives these two Christ-exalting responses. <clears throat> and he does so first negatively in verses 
20 through 21. He testifies to his own identity first negatively. Look at verse 20. And he confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then are you, Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So the focus here is on identity. What is your identity? When you first read this, you probably think to yourself, oh, John, man, why do you have to make this so complicated? Just answer the question, right? So why all this, I'm not this, I'm not this, no, no, no. Just tell them, right? Um, but I think the reason he does it is in order to highlight the very essence of his mission, the very essence of his identity. In other words, it is through these negative questions that he is answering the identity question of who he is. Um, John's very identity consisted in his role as being a pointer away from himself to the Messiah that was going to come after him. So he is answering the identity question here by these negative answers. It is as he points away from himself to Christ who's coming after him that he gives the very essence of his identity. This is who he is. And here he makes crystal clear what he is not so that none would fail to look beyond him. That's why John came point beyond himself. So let's look at these negative answers one by one and uh, get a better handle on what's going on here. They ask him, straightforward, who are you, John? And it's pretty obvious what they were, what they were after. Um, they were saying, we know that you claim to be somebody, and we're expecting a number of <coughs> prophesied figures to arrive on the scene. So which one do you claim to be? That's what they're saying. In verse 20, John confesses, does not deny, but he confesses, I am not the Christ. He gives an emphatic denial that whatever he is, he is not Messiah. Messiah is coming. His focus and mission were so much focused on revealing Christ and the Messiah that the only words John found in response to this question was, I am not him, pointing to Christ. Look at the next question, verse 21. They said, what then are you, Elijah? Now, Elijah was the only Old Testament prophet that never died. What happened to Elijah? He was caught up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And so Jewish, Jewish expectation was that Elijah never died. He would come back at the end times and would restore all things, to use the words that Jesus used. They were awaiting the return of Elijah. Malachi 4, 5 also prophesies that Elijah would come before the great day of the Lord to prepare Israel. But in this question, John likewise replies, I am not. Now, if you know your Bibles well, you probably have a question here. Because Jesus, over in Matthew 11 and Mark 9, identifies John the Baptist as who? As Elijah. So is he Elijah or is he, is he not? This is a contradiction um, here. I say, no, it's not a contradiction. You say, well, what's going on? I think we can give a few options, how to think through this, how John can say, I'm not Elijah, and how Jesus can say he is Elijah, and both of them be, be true. First, Jesus identifies John as Elijah because he is the prophesied figure of Malachi 4.5. He is the one that has come to usher in the day of the Lord, to usher in the arrival of Messiah. 
unto the scene. He came in the spirit and likeness of Elijah. What did Elijah do? What characterized his ministry? He was calling the nation to repentance and uh, turn to the Lord. John came in that same spirit and likeness. But it's very possible that John didn't make this connection. It's very possible that he didn't see himself as the fulfillment. Jesus knew more about John than John himself did. Um, so I think that's first answer on how they could say these two seemingly contradictory things. Second, since Elijah never died, we just said that many Jews expected the identical person of Elijah to return at the end times, to which John responds saying, I'm not him. I'm not that identical person of Elijah. No, that's not, that's not me. Um, very possible. Third, this question about Elijah comes to this list of prophesied figures. The Messiah, <coughs> Elijah, and then the next one's going to be the prophet. And so it seems that um, John responds so strongly to this question because he wants to avoid any possibility that he would overshadow um, the one that he was sent to point to. In other words, John was so cautious not to shadow the coming of Christ in any way that he even denies being Elijah, who Jesus later says that he, that he was. He has such a care to have all attention on Christ. Look at the next one, verse 21. Said, they said, well, then you're not Elijah, you're not the Christ, well, then you must be the prophet. Notice it says the prophet. It doesn't say a prophet. Okay, John was a prophet. It's true. But he wasn't the prophet. The prophet was another, one of these prophesied figures that the Old Testament promised were coming. Um, it was alluded to back in Deuteronomy 18. So hold your hand here and go to Deuteronomy 18, <clears throat> because the prophet will surface a number more times in um, the Gospel of John. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Moses speaking, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Look down at verse 18. I will raise up a prophet like you among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. But John says that I am not him. That prophet that you're expecting to come, that's just like Moses, it's not me. Go back to John, flip over to chapter 7. The Jews um, reckon, many of the Jews thought that this prophet was a different, distinct person from the Messiah. They were expecting a number of uh, prophesied figures to arise on the scene. Uh, you can see this pretty clearly. In verse 40 of chapter 7, when they heard these words, some people said, This is really the prophet. One spoken about by Moses, verse 41 says, Others said, no, this is the Messiah. Pretty clearly, they're expecting these to be different, distinct, um, eschatological prophesied figures that would arise. And as we go through the Gospel of John, we're going to see that, no, actually, the prophet, the Messiah, and a number of other prophesied figures is one. It is Jesus. It's him go back now to John chapter 1 and look at John's response. So 
You're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. To you, the prophet, John simply says, no. Notice how his answers become shorter and sharper. He goes from, I am not the Christ, to I am not, to no. You can get hear him just getting sterner and sterner. Um, the more they press for a figure, the more adamant he becomes. One commentator said that these answers appear to stem from a dislike for answering questions about himself. He had come to bear witness about another. So they're missing it with the, the questions. He is giving them his identity and his very negative answers. Well, so far, the delegation hasn't made much progress, um, or so they think. Um, they've come with a simple question and have gotten little to show for it. What are they going to go back to Jerusalem with? So they ask him another question in verse 22. Look what it says. And they said to him, so who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you make about yourself? They say, okay, if you will not tell us which prophesied Old Testament figure you are, then tell us your self-evaluation. Who do you claim to be? They don't give them any options this time. To which John now responds positively in verse 23. Look what he says. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. His answer is simply a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. And uh, if you are um, familiar at all with the book of Isaiah, you know chapter 40 is the pivot point of the book of Isaiah. It is judgment, 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 all the way up until verse Chapter 40, verse 1, and who knows what chapter 40, verse 1 says. It says, was it? I heard it. Comfort. comfort. Yes, comfort, my people. It's where it all shifts. And it begins proclaiming these promises that the Lord is going to bring to his covenant people, um, even though they're in exile. Um, and this is where John quotes from. I am the voice of one crying from the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming back, and he's going to restore Israel from exile. But it becomes very clear that this prophecy of, of Isaiah was not ultimately fulfilled in the return of Israel from exile. Just because they were back in the land, they were still under the oppression of Gentiles. Yahweh's presence has still not returned to the temple. Um, and most of these promises, the new heavens, the new earth, all of these promises in chapters 65, 66 of Isaiah still have not taken place. Um, and so John's message is that the promised comfort is still coming. But he's not the one to deliver it. He is simply the voice. He's the one that would call Israel to prepare for the one who would make all these promises a reality. You probably know the rest of that verse where it says a voice calling in the wilderness. It talks about removing all these obstacles from the road and make all the mountains level. Um, prepare the way for the Lord's return. And John applies it metaphorically to the spiritual condition of Israel, they need to repent. They need to get ready because he's coming. And that was the function of John. And so he's a voice. He was prophesied about. And, yeah. yeah and, so. uh, that's what they would do uh, in the Old Testament days. Would, if a king or some dignitary was coming, they would take away obstacles in the road. You think of what yep. roads were back then. And as they would come in and everything would be made straight for them to come in. That's good. So, yeah, it's excellent. Excellent. Yep. And uh, I say Israel 
miss the point, and John is here to, to show them this is not just literal. This is um, this is symbolic for what you need to do in your hearts, preparing for for Messiah. So that's excellent. Yeah, good illustration. Um, so that's what John was. He was a voice he must be listened to. He was sent by God. He is important. He's not insignificant. And yet in John's estimation, whatever identity he possessed, as a prophet, as sent from God, he was just a voice. I'm just a voice. Who are you? I'm a voice. Yeah, the one prophesied by Isaiah, but I'm not the point. I'm here to prepare for the one who's coming. If this, this was true of John the Baptist, I'd just say, before we move on, how much more is it true, ought it to be true, of each of us in this room? Do I recognize that my primary identity is to have no identity at all except for exalting and pointing to Christ? That is why I exist. You say, well, I'm not John the Baptist. That's true. But what was John the Baptist's goal? It was to point everybody to behold and see Christ as fully supreme as John himself saw him. So that what? So that they could do the very same thing. John viewed his primary identity as one who existed to point to another. And that's the same calling on, on all of us. I heard an illustration one time that said, we are just straws in a chocolate milkshake. That's all we are. Nobody goes to Mr. Goody's and, and looks at the straw, right? It's not the point. You're a straw. We're there to communicate the richness and goodness and sweetness and beauty and wonder of this one to the world. So, yeah. Maybe there's a connection with the with the transfiguration where Elijah comes mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, ultimately the voice says, This is my beloved son, mm-hmm. hear him. Yeah. Yep. That's right. Elijah yeah. came there he did. in in a different form. He did, he did. That's a very interesting interesting passage. We don't have time to go into it. Uh, but interesting enough, right after that the disciples say, Why did the scribes say Elijah must come first? And Jesus said he does come first, but he points to John the Baptist right there in that, in that context. So it's, a, it's very interesting. But, yep, it's good. So that's why we're here. Um, we're straws. We're not the point. And the focus is not to be us. We're a pointer, just like John. So let's move on now to the John's second Christ-exalting response. He exalts Christ first as he testifies to his own identity. That's just a voice, a pointer to the one who's going to fulfill all these Old Testament promises. And now he exalts Christ as he defends his own authority. Look at verse 24 through 28, this this next section. The delegation still hasn't been satisfied with John's responses. He's not helping uh, them out very much. So they ask this decisive question that really gets to the root of what they've been after from the start. Look at verse 24. It says, They've been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor prophet. So now we see really what's driving their their question, why, why they're there in the first place. It was John's baptism. They assumed that there must be some connection between his baptism and one of these prophesied Old Testament figures. Elijah, the Christ, or the prophet. See that? There's some connection there. Uh, 
what's interesting is there's no reference in the Old Testament to any of these figures baptizing. There's no reference in any intertestamental Jewish literature that I'm aware of of these figures baptizing. So, so why are they making this, this connection here? Why would they assume that such a baptism would require you to have the authority of either the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet? Why do they, why do they, why do they ask that question? Why do you have to be one of those to have authority to baptize, in other words? Well, baptism um, wasn't unheard of at this time. There were many ritual purifications that the Jews um, participated in. Once even that you had to totally immerse yourself in water uh, and bring yourself out. Um, a lot of times it was performed at the temple you know, on a regular basis. Um, anyone in here been to Israel before? The Rhymers? If you've been there, you've probably seen in Jerusalem things that are called mikvah. So you have stairs that go down into a pool where you would immerse yourself, and then stairs coming out on the other side where you come out ritually purified. So there was sort of already this concept there uh, that the Jews participated in. But it's very different from John's baptism because this was participated in on a regular basis as you go to Jerusalem, prepare for the feast, whatever it was. There was another form of baptism, though, at that time, which is called proselyte baptism. It is what a Gentile, if he wanted to become true member of Israel, a Jew would participate in. So not only would he have to be circumcised if he was a male, but he would also undergo what was called a proselyte baptism, a symbolic immersion in water in which he purified himself from his Gentile uncleanness. It's very possible that this is the background to John's baptism. But what, what is so stunning is that John comes proclaiming a baptism, but it's not directed at Gentiles. Who is he directing it to? It's directed to Jews, Jews who assume we are the people of God. He comes proclaiming a baptism of repentance to prepare for the kingdom. But the Jews said, we're Jews, of course we're ready. What are you, what are you talking about? And so John's baptism was very provocative. He says, if you want to be a member of the Messiah's people, if you want to enter the kingdom, you too must prepare by repentance. Symbolized through baptism. It was a very radical message that John had directed at Israel. Um, and this certainly caught the attention of, uh, of Jerusalem. And so it was in response to such a radical message and a focus on the kingdom that led these Jewish authorities to wonder whether he must be one of these end time figures. And since he denied being any of those, and the question is okay, John, well then what? Authority could you possibly claim to have such a provocative message as this? If you're not any of them, then, then what are you doing? So the question is one of authority. If you claim no intrinsic authority as the Christ or the prophet, why are you baptizing? To which John gives an explicit answer. Look at verse 26. John answered them, I baptize with water. Now, at first glance, um, you might think that doesn't really answer the authority question. Um, they know he baptizes with water. That's what they are. That's what they're questioning. Um, but John's answer implies his authority. The emphasis is on I. I baptize with water. He's just proclaimed he's the prophesied voice of Isaiah. And in a few verses, he's going to say that he was sent by, by God. He implies his authority. He assumes his authority, but just like his identity, he doesn't linger on it. 
because to linger on it would be a contradiction to the very purpose he was given authority in the first place. He was given authority, why? So that he would point to another. And so he doesn't linger here. You know, and he's not claiming that his baptism brings true salvation. That's right. Yep. That's right. It was the, it was the repentance that was demanded in the and baptism. And was certainly right. Yep. Yep. Certainly with the symbolic outward expression of it. John says, in other words, my identity and authority, as important as it is, is not the biggest question you need to answer. The biggest question is who it is that my baptism prepares for and points to. So after we hear John say, I baptize with water, what do you expect to hear him say next? Don't, don't look at your uh, Bible. Just think about all the times you hear. John says, I baptize him with water, but you expect him to say, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's not what he says here. He's going to say that in the next section. Uh, but he's still on the authority question here. He, he doesn't contrast two baptisms here. It's not what's going on. Uh, what does he say? Rather than contrasting these baptisms, he contrasts his identity and his authority as preparation for the Supreme One who is already in the midst. He says, you have not understood my authority until you understand the purpose of my baptism. And you will not understand the purpose of my baptism until you understand the one who it points to and prepares for. Look how he describes in the verse 26b to 27. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The statement of John most likely comes after he's already baptized Jesus. He's already been revealed to John. He's already seen him. He's already come to know him. And so he declares him. But he is unknown. He's already among Israel. He's already arrived. He's already presented himself. But he's unknown. God has not revealed his Messiah to the Jewish leadership. He's revealed it to his servant, John. And it's the responsibility of all people to respond to this testimony. He's unknown. That is why God sent John. That is why he has this baptism. That is why he has any authority, because he's come unknown. And he's going to reveal himself first through the testimony of John. The only ones that are going to get it are those who submit to his call for repentance. But not only is he unknown, look at this. This is the climactic point of this passage. He is of supreme worth. Look at verse 27. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Yes, he comes after John. And we talked last week that the expectation of the Jews was if you come after somebody, you're, you're, you're lesser. Um, it's those who are prior who have superiority. But John says, no, no, no. The greatest is coming last. The ultimate expression of God's glory comes last of all. Look what John says about him. He proclaims he is of supreme worth because he recognizes he's none other than the eternal word of God. He says, even he who comes after me. Look back at verse 15 where John already alluded to this. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. Why? Because he was... 
John recognizes this one he was sent to proclaim is none other than the eternal word of God, the creator. D.A. Carson said that a student was expected to do for his teacher whatever a slave would do, except for taking off his shoes. Loosening the straps and removing the shoe was one of the dirtiest, lowliest, menial tasks that one could do. John says that this one that I've come to proclaim, the one I've come to point to, even this job is of such supremacy. He is of such supremacy that the lowest, smallest, dirtiest service toward him is above That is how glorious this one is. And that is the testimony of John. You say, well, where in the world did, did John get his humility from? He's, every line of this section, he's diverting focus away from himself. Okay, yeah, I have authority, but it's not for me, it's for him. It's him, he's after me, he's coming after me. He, he's, I'm not even worthy to take his shoes off. Why is he so quick to divert attention from himself? I say it's become, because he's become face to face with the realities expressed in verses 1 to 18. He's come to know this one as what verses 1 to 18 declare. He is the Word made flesh. He is God who dwells in us. He's the one that the whole Old Testament pointed towards. Because he came to the awareness of the person of Christ, he came also to the awareness of his own nothingness and his own presence. And therefore, he responds to these questions about his identity and authority by diverting all attention to Christ. D.A. Carson again put it this way. He said, whatever stature John has, it is nothing compared to the stature of one who is still unrecognized among the people. And that's why John came. That's his purpose, to point all to him. You know, and then Jesus later said that he was the greatest yeah. uh, yep. to be born a woman. Yeah, and so if this is the, the greatest of Old Testament prophets here, what does that say about us in comparison to, to Christ? So that's the testimony of John. His very identity was revealed in his humble testimony, in his humble message. It was not about himself. It was not all would hear him and look to another. So in closing, we've got a few minutes here. I want to just think about some application for us. What does this mean? for my life. And the application is not simply that we should imitate John the Baptist. And so, so get this, okay? We should imitate John the Baptist, but that's not the main point. Rather, the call is that we respond to John's testimony. Look back at verse 19. This is the testimony of John the Baptist. What do you do with testimonies? You hear them and you believe them if they're true, right? So this is the testimony. This is the declaration of the coming Messiah, Jesus, who is so much more superior to John that we should give our whole lives to know him and be sure we're part of his people. That's the testimony of John. That's the main point of this, of this passage. The testimony of John is that we would look to Jesus and not to John. Right? 
If we make the main application of this text about John and John's humility, we've missed the whole point of this passage. That's not the point. The humility is the overflow, but it's not the focus. The testimony of John pointing away from himself is this humility is necessary, but it's only the byproduct of beholding the glory of Christ. Do you see the difference? That's what we're after. In other words, I don't want you to go away saying, wow, what a humble guy John was. I need to become like John. You missed it. That's not the point. The point is, we must go away saying how glorious this Christ must be. That even the greatest of Old Testament prophets said, I am not worthy to take his shoes off. How glorious he must be. And therefore, how could I not respond with equal, even greater humility so yes, pursue humility like John's, but pursue it like John pursued How do we do that? It's by seeing my nothingness in comparison to his glory and his eternal worth. That is what John's testimony is about. So that being said, John obviously does give himself as a model for us. He shows us what um, our response should be to be holding the, the glories of, of Christ. And I just want to throw the question out to you um, to toss around here for a minute. Practically, how would you work this out? What are some evidences, um, practically, that I have come to know the glory of Christ like John the Baptist has here? Or to flip it around the other way, what are some evidences, practically, that I have yet to come to know and see the glory of Christ as John has here? What strikes me, though, is that later on, John himself had doubts. Where he said, are you the one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we take comfort in this, that we too struggle sometimes mm-hmm. with questions and doubts, even though we may have experienced uh, uh, the, the glory of Christ. And yet later on, it dims, and then we question, and we have to come back to be reaffirmed in our faith. Yeah, so we do. Because John said, are you the one who should walk? Yep. Uh, after all of this? Yep. Yep. It's good. Where does he direct? He directs him to the scripture. And that's where we must come back over and over. Um, not based on what we perceive. So. And yet Jesus, in a sense, doesn't, doesn't... I've often wondered when Jesus then answers that question about John, are you the one who should come? And he questions it, I think, because he's in prison. And he wonders why Jesus is doing all that and not attending to him. Mm-hmm. And the question then for us is, when things don't go our way, we may see Jesus, God answering prayers for somebody else, but not for me. And we wonder why not. Mm-hmm. Jesus gave the answer. He didn't yeah. help John. He just said, I'm doing this for somebody else, yeah. not for you. Yeah, yeah, it's good, it's good. And later we're going to see in chapter 3, John um, expresses exactly what that truth is you're getting out there, John says, I must decrease and he must increase. That's primarily about John's ministry. I'm, my whole point is to come off the same, to give way for, for him. And uh, So you bring up trials and suffering in, in life. I think that's very applicable because all of that comes under our whole life. Whatever circumstances it is, whatever trials, suffering, whatever it is, it is for this purpose of, of Christ knowing him, making him known and uh, his glory. Yes. I think 
we see this in our lives when we treat serving God like it's a real thing. Like we say, like, oh, like I'm I'm doing God's work. Or, I'm I'm out here to serve God, you know. And and we get so used to it, like we, we like lose the gravity of what that means. Like the idea that you know, I'm going to go out and do God's work, or the work that a, an infinite, almighty God is going to do. And I'm going to say, yeah, like I can serve God. Like I'm out here serving God. Um, so this kind of like taking the sandal off, like I'm not even worthy to do that for God. Like it, it should take us back or treating ministry or things like ministry. It's very, it's very it's excellent. excellent. We're ministry. One of my professors called it ministry idolatry. That's sort of what I, 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 my ministry because of idolatry. It's teaching or, or my, my little thing that I'm doing. It's a good thing. It's what God is giving you a gift to do, but it can become an idol in itself. I mean, we forget that. We're just strong. <laughs> That's all I am. To use whatever God has given me for his attention, for the glory of Christ, that all will come to know him. So it's very good to And we don't take his sandal off, but there are many lowly tasks around us. None of us are above cleaning bathrooms or changing dirty diapers, whatever, whatever it is. That everything, whoever you are, we're, we exist for the glory of Christ. We, we are not above anything. Anything else? I think valuing Christ like John does will see the sinfulness of sin and it won't be like a one-time baptism of repentance. It'll just be a continual lifestyle of repentance as we see the glory of Christ, we see our own sinfulness that drives us to repent. That really takes us back to a few with us when we watch the DVD series by Paul Tripp, he said the DNA of sin is what? It is selfishness, self-love. All sin we do grows out of this soil of just, I love me. It's preoccupation with self. It's where it comes from, every bit of it. And this is the remedy. That we would behold him such that I start to forget about me. It's not about me. And I was talking with Naomi about this the other night. Um, I used to and still do often um, get angry when people cut me off in the road. And I just finished studying this on the way to Shandor. This big old moving truck pulls right in front of me. And so the Lord's given me an opportunity to work this out. And so what am I tempted to do? I'm tempted to get angry. Well, why? It's because my focus is on me. I have rights. I don't deserve that. And it's very passionate. It's told me I don't have any rights. I'm nothing. Um, rather now, this... Dude, put out a point, it's an opportunity to glorify Christ. Show that he's more superior uh, to anything. And I'm nothing uh, but his, uh, his uh, change his life. Uh, because all of life, our problem is I love me. Turns us out. So anything else? It is time, I believe. 10.15, right on time. So John the Baptist, he, he gives us the model uh, that we are to... Uh, Follow, but it's not by imitating John, it's by looking to what John looked at. So let me <coughs> Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. And we confess we are self-lovers. We have not beheld the glory of Christ as we ought. I ask you help us, Lord. That's why you've given us this book, so that we might hold glory and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Thank you, Lord, for your work already in our hearts that we have seen it and we ask that we grow. We love him more, treasure him more, worship him more with our lives. Lord, I ask you to prepare us for the service to come. Give us 
Eyes to see, ears to hear, humility. We love you. In Jesus' name. Alrighty. You guys are dismissed. And there is praise back through the night, so you can help stack the chairs. Great.